Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name's Adam Lundy, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Zach Bryant and Chris Haskell. How are you doing today, guys? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. Well, good afternoon for me. Good morning to you guys. <laughs> how, are you, how are you doing this? Are you having a good weekend? Uh, yeah, man, I'm doing great. Zach, how are you doing after getting up and starting your morning with the ascent? <laughs> Honestly, I told Adam earlier, I think it's better than a cup of coffee, you know, to see a kid get hung. (laughs) Uh, We'll definitely dig into that one a little bit later. Uh, For now, we're going to jump in on our first film, uh, which was the 1973 French animated film from René Laloux uh, called Fantastic Planet. Um, I didn't think it was very fantastic. Um, I I, want to see what you guys think. Um, Just to give our listeners a little bit of a a lead in on this one if they haven't seen it the the basic premise is uh, on a faraway planet where blue giants rule oppressed oppressed humanoids rebel against their machine-like leaders um so anyone have any sort of opening thoughts they want to jump in with for this one i think no. i was the positive one so i can either go first or i can go last it doesn't really matter to me <laughs> no let's start with the positives um okay so I actually end up liking it. It's not like my favorite movie, but I really love the animation style. And I think a big complaint I could definitely hear, and I I don't know this for sure. I didn't go too in-depth in y'all's reviews because I wanted to hear what y'all said here. But um, it reminds me a lot, and I guess this is for me. I, I grew up reading a lot of Ray Bradbury, and this is exactly what this feels like to me. It actually feels a lot like uh, his short story, uh, The Other Foot, which is like about the... the uh, this Afri- the, when African Americans like go to Mars and settle on a different planet, sort of deal, and it goes through kind of like that racial segregation system and stuff like that. This sort of feels like that, except for it feels like I guess it's dealing more with the exploit. It's dealing with a kind of a lot of different things. Like the beginning of the film feels a little bit more like uh, the exploitation we've had in like animals, like you know you want to go through Pediaphardum Circus, blah blah blah, stuff like that. Then it kind of moves into almost like an underground railroad sort of thing. And and then it kind of goes into almost the end of a Cold War scenario, which I think, you know, comes off a little bit happier than it really is. But overall, I kind of liked it. Yeah, there's some stuff that's definitely on the nose, but if I guess that's not a really a big deal breaker for me. That's a a cool tie into history. Um, That that does give me a little bit of pause on on what I'm going to say. I think... The, the biggest issue for me was not in the in what you're laying out. That actually makes a lot of sense. It was an, some, some, I don't know if it was the animation style or what, but I just could never get connected to the movie. I always felt like I was watching it kind of as an outsider, just like, you know, watching this, but I never felt invested in any of the characters or, or any of the, of the film. That was, that was my biggest kind of critique on it. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's going to be hard to connect with these kind of characters. Um, the 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 ohms I think are the sort of humanoid ones like obviously even they're they're supposed to be, they're supposedly technically not human so it's going to be hard to um to to engage with them like for me for this film like I didn't hate the film or anything like that it's not like a, it's not like images part two or revengeance where I'm going to go and shit all over this film um hmm. I love the animation style it was really great to look at I thought the music was cool as hell I loved the score it was like yeah, it was it was like a Pink Floydy, funky, jazzy score. It was it was awesome. For me, where it falls down is 
that how a film this strange and weird looking can be so unsubtle in what they're trying to say. You know, it's it's just a basic sort of battle of the classes. You know, whether you want to look at it from racial segregation or animal rights, it's basically one side thinks they're better than the other and the other side doesn't think so and rises up to try and change things. You've seen it in a million one different movies or stories or, you know, novels throughout history. We've seen it all before. And I think the only thing this film has going for it is this sort of animation style. But like, if you take the animation style away from this, it would just be a pretty bog standard story that would maybe get a bit of Oscar bait or something. Um, but yeah, for me, yeah, I just thought it was annoying that something so strange and otherworldly could be so unsubtle in what I was trying to say. I guess the, the reason the unsubtleness doesn't really bother me is just because let me, let me figure out how exactly I want to word this, but I guess essentially, you know, going back to my love for Ray Bradbury, it's what got me into Mm sci-fi. He's not the most subtle individual either. So I guess part of me is used to that as much as I love Bradbury stuff. Um, But these are almost like, I guess, universal sort of understandings we should have. And if they were, you know, I guess the subtlety, the problem is it's kind of the message can be easily lost in something this strange. You know, you Mm -hmm. kind of just get lost into everything instead of the message it's trying to. Sure, it's a message everyone knows, but it's a message that we, I guess, still struggle with even after what this movie came out in 73. And this issue was a problem before then. It's a problem since sort of idea. That, you know, I don't mind that it kind of gets a little ham-fisted. Yeah, ham-fisted. That's, that's the exact word that that I would I would give to this. It's definitely ham-fisted. Uh, who, and one thing I was just kind of wondering, like, who's the audience or something like this? Is it, is it just people who, who just like to take drugs and watch movies? And if that's the case, you know, why even try and put a message in if it's just something for people to trip out on? I watched this sober, so I can't comment on it, but it probably would be pretty neat to not watch sober. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, you still have to make it compelling. <laughs> if it's a drug movie, you still, have to, you still have to try to have a reason for making it, I guess. But, you know, I was just looking at some of the other films that Lalu directed. He actually wasn't that active um, uh, in terms of quantity, but he did the film. So this was 73, right? Yeah, 73. And then it took him almost 10 years to get another director credit. And it was this He-Man looking story called Time Masters. Um, the, do y'all remember the old Masters of the Universe animation style? Yeah. It's very similar to that. And, uh, in, and then he had, it looks like, so he, he basically did this. He had a couple shorts, he did this. And then 10 years later, he did a movie. And then one more film. And that was it, as far as director credits. Like, it seems as though he was influential, at least. Like, Heavy Metal came out in the 80s, and that would be sort of relatively sort of similar in terms of what they were trying to achieve, both visually and sonically, with the sort of use of the more rocky soundtrack, with the sort of strange animation. I don't know if have you guys have seen Heavy Metal. I have not. I've wanted to, but I haven't yeah, watched Yeah, I think it was, like, it was early 80s anyway, um, and yeah, it's sort of like follow. It's basically like a like an animated film, but like obviously not for kids. Kind of like this, you know. There's a lot of like violence and you know, sort of sexual images or you no know, sexualities portrayed throughout the film. Um, 
and obviously with like a with a heavy metal soundtrack as well kind of like how this one kind of has that sort of funky jazz soundtrack so like no doubt the film is influential yeah. Uh, but yeah i don't know it just maybe maybe i'm kind of like you chris where it just it didn't connect i, I didn't connect with it um there was just yeah i don't know i, I think it was i think I'm, like, the only thing i can really put my finger on is the, is the story I, I didn't i just didn't really care enough about what, what was happening with the story because it was so straightforward i could kind of just see it before it was even happening you know yeah. it's like oh they're gonna rise up and oh something's gonna happen and you know it's it's one of those ones where you can kind of predict it maybe maybe that's why they want people to be chemically altered while while watching the films that they maybe aren't paying as close attention to how easy the plot is to figure out yeah i mean i think like that some of the choices they made kind of kept pulling me out of it right like when they went to that one kind of moon planet and there was the bodies that were just there and without heads and then the balls the traveling like orbs came down and rested yeah. on the and they did their like non-sexual sex dance <laughs> yeah um it, it's a cool idea i guess you know i, I mean I, I it's interesting right i get it they're world building and they're kind of painting this picture like i get what's going on for sure uh but I don't know, like it sort of took me out of it in a way because, the, you know, they just, the dancing was just kind of like moving back and forth a little bit um, and it just wasn't that engaging. And I think, anyways, I, so I've only been negative on the film so far. I, I actually did enjoy watching it from a distance. I, I, I just, I wanted to be more connected to it than I was because I think I, there was parts of like pieces of it that I liked. So I kind of, at the end of the movie, I just was sort of like, okay, well, I saw it. And and I just wanted there to be more of a, of a connection to this kind of classic piece of animation. Um, uh, that Yeah, I, I guess that's, that's kind of the thing for me. But um, yeah, that, anyways, I, I don't really know what else to even say about it. I mean, I think it's, you know, I'm glad to have seen it um, for sure when, you know, I don't know, does everybody, does anybody, uh, or have we discussed how we actually pick movies on this podcast before? I don't think we actually have discussed that. I don't that. think we've ever. I, I've I've briefly sort of mentioned it in the description of the episodes, but I don't think we've ever actually gone in depth on on how these films get chosen. No, if you wanna if you wanna talk about that for a moment, just to give our, our listeners a bit of an insight. Yeah, so we have a Discord that right now has about what fifteen, roughly about fifteen members. Yeah, give or take, and then um, we all go on a on a um, we all have our week, so we just kind of go in a rolling order, and we pick five movies five films and sometimes by theme sometimes just you know five films that we like but generally there's some kind of theme behind it this this week's theme was animation and then we put it up on the criterion sub for people to vote on what we're going to watch uh and so there's a reality show element to it i guess <laughs> uh, uh, and we typically get on a on a low week where people don't really recognize the films we make it 40 50 votes and on a week where people get excited about it it's what two to three hundred votes Mm. Um, and uh, this was a, I mean, this is one of the more blow away winners, right? This one is, I think everybody wanted to hear us talk about this movie. <laughs> within within an hour of the poll going live, so we, we leave our polls up for 24 hours to make sure that we get as much people in as possible. Within an hour of this film going live, I had already turned on Fantastic Planet to watch it because I just knew <laughs> it had gone that far ahead within an hour. That I said, I'm just going to watch this now just to get it out of the way. That's yeah. how much of an obvious blowout this film was going to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
So, anyways, that that's why we're watching these movies. That's that's the why behind the order we're talking about every week. Um, and you know, the one thing I will say too, in terms of influence for this one, I guess I should mention. I, I meant to mention this earlier. Terry Gilliam, I, I love him, and I, and I love his kind of creative, wacky mind, and and his animation style would fit very well with Lalu. I think that they, you know, if you think about the animation in front of Monty Python, yeah, the Monty Python stuff, um, the, the the foot crashing down could be very sort of similar to this, uh, that yeah. sort of famous foot crashing down. I can't remember which Monty Python film it's in, uh, but yeah, the foot crashing down, a lot of the animation in um, Monty Python films. Would be would be very similar to this as well and i i don't want to be totally negative on this film one thing i can talk about with absolute positivity is the animation style it's incredible to look at it's endlessly creative and interesting everything it's it's one of those things where everything is strange yet familiar you know it's it's an alien planet aliens everywhere alien life alien buildings but it's not so uncanny that it just looks like a complete mess. Like everything still looks like it makes sense. Um, which I think if you're going to talk about surrealism, that's kind of the apex of where you want to be. You want to thread that line of, oh, that's weird, but it makes sense. I see where they're coming from kind of way. That's that's where you want to be as a sweet spot when it comes to surrealist uh, sort of art and animation, obviously, in this case. Um, so yeah, one thing I will not speak negatively about is the animation. It's it's a really really fun, interesting film that even without the plot, I can see why people would get would love this film just from watching it, just from experiencing the visuals of the film. I can completely understand why people would like it from for that uh, point of view. Which um, both of you guys have kind of mentioned, um, kind of feeling like a little distanced from the film like emotionally and stuff like that mm. and sitting here thinking about it i almost wonder if it's part of that's by design because i wouldn't say i'm like i think there is a sense of disconnect right because the beginning of the film while there are these humanoid creatures we're all the beginning you almost feel like you're supposed to see yourself as the drags who are holding you know the human as pets and blah 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 i feel like you know they're the ones who are technologically advancing they're the ones that are furthering their society and still doing this and then the second half of the film happens and then you're supposed to immediately start kind of identifying with the alms who are the more humanoid creatures who you know go through that so i almost feel like that could be a purpose to the whole sense of like the othering idea the idea of othering the other side and mm. that sense of disconnect and of course you'll get to we'll get to i'm sure we'll talk about the end of the film but the sense that it's kind of bittersweet in the sense that they have found peace, but it's through almost like an arms race sort of deal. That's the only reason they found any sort of peace. Um, and they've accepted that. Um, but yeah, I'll, I almost wonder if the disconnect is almost on purpose, especially using the sci-fi alien planet sort of ideal to kind of see yourself from the outside instead of immediately connecting to one over the other too heavily. Yeah, sort of give you a chance to pick your side almost. Who do you see yourself more as? Do you see yourself more as the the, the higher-minded being or do you see yourself more with the ohms who are um, simplistic but obviously extremely um, sort of extremely proud and extremely, or, you know, just really wanting to, to better themselves and to not be seen as animals. Um, 
Oh, okay. So I, I'm so glad you phrased it like that because maybe maybe there is different interpretations of this movie. This is good to talk about. This. So so I actually left with the uh, kind of the exact opposite impression. So the, the, I'm so glad you brought that up, Zach. This might lead to some good discussion here. So I actually felt by the end of the film that the drags were the simple-minded creatures who just happened to be a little bit further ahead. And they kind of used like oppressive force and they had basic science right to kind of keep the ohms oppressed but then by the end of it it turns out that the ohms learned much faster and they were able to kind of overcome like all of these obstacles that were placed on them to actually get to a place where they were kind of peers if not holding the upper hand a little bit right yeah and i feel like there's almost a sense of um two sides of the same coin you know one thing that I really caught my eye you know um was the whole idea that one of them learned how to read the drag language, mm-hmm. which, you know, slaves learning to read was a big part of slave revolts and things like that. But it, it's a power, it's a power play. So yeah, while we could see one side as, and you know, you can, you know, of course I'm going to put this, a lot of this in an American thing because that's what I'm more familiar with, but it's the same idea of, you know, native Americans and the Europeans in the sense that, um, you know, one is looked at as, savages and one is looked at as the um civilized world but the thing is one will adapt to the other and try to catch up if it, if that's what's necessary and in this case the alms it was necessary for them to advance themselves if they had any chance of not going extinct yeah i see i feel like the tribes were not necessarily simple-minded they were just arrogant uh over time because of their dominance they had like you, you saw with the the daughter Trag, the one who takes the arm as a pet at the start of the film, and she doesn't really care about her learning or anything like that. She seems very lackadaisical, and I think the Trags, just as a as a race, became because they were so dominant, they just became extremely, um, just yeah, they just um, they they weren't as interested in advancing any further. They became very complacent, oh, and yeah. it, that's what gave the arms a chance to try and and catch up and sort of act on that complacency. Um, as a means, you know, that, you know, kind of way, oh, they've dropped the ball. This is our chance to to really sort of make a play here. Um, just on the front of like allegories and things like that, um, on the Wikipedia page for this film, there's a quote from uh, Sean Axemaker of Turner Classic, Movie, uh, Turner Classic Movies, um, who basically said about the film that like it's not a stretch to see the fight against oppression reflecting the civil rights struggle in the US, French and Algeria, apartheid in South Africa and the Holocaust itself. Um and I I think that's pretty obvious. I don't think anyone yeah, would the disagree. Yeah, the gassing more kind of hit that on the nose when they start gassing them. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Right. And in a way the film was kind of ahead of its time almost as well with how it ends. I suppose we might as well just sort of dive into that here at this stage. Just the fact that I think you mentioned it, Chris, about like almost like a Cold War kind of ending, that instead of mutual destruction, that they would sort of try and live in peace, but separately. And we obviously see that in the Cold War between the US and Russia, where they don't, okay, they're not going to, they're not going to actively fight against each other anymore, but we are still very much separate. We are not friends. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, being in 1973, this is obviously quite ahead of its time. That wouldn't happen for another sort of um, 15 or so years in in the in real world. Um, so it did kind of predict how the Cold War would go uh, between the U.S. and and the Soviet Union. 
So, you know, you know again, I feel like <laughs> I feel like me and Chris have maybe came across like we hate this film. Um, and I, I certainly don't hate the film at all. Like, you know, it tells an important story. Um, it's it's obviously a very well treaded story in terms of how many different ways it can be told and how many different people have told it in one way or another. Um, so, yeah, it is it's on the nose and, and ham fisted is another phrase we could use. Um, but I suppose it's still an important story and you can respect Lalu for wanting to tell it in such an extravagant way and such a such an interesting way, I suppose. Um, yeah, it was it was Zach that talked about the Cold War. If I ever make an interesting reference to history, I want to get a high probably, five. Probably wasn't. Okay, if I ever hear a history reference, it was Zach. It wasn't you. My apologies. <laughs> I'm just going to start making up things that happen in history and just see you guys like nod along to it. Like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I do study history at the moment, so I, I won't I won't be caught out as easy as Chris, I'd say. But I'd say <laughs> you probably still know a lot more than me. So the, one of the things that was going on in France at this time, uh, sorry, that was a funny joke. I Sorry, I was getting back <laughs> I was looking at IMDb right as you said that. Sorry. <laughs> um, I, one of the, the, so Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie came out in 72, and this came out in 73, right? And I know I totally agree that this was probably a reflection on like a lot of the different uh, movements that you just described from Wikipedia. But when you said the arrogance of the ruling class that really kind of reminded me of, of Bunuel and a lot of what he talks about, like his, his opinion of the bourgeoisie and, and kind of like his opinion of those that are in, in, in rule and on top and how lazy and complacent and arrogant they get. So and I have to imagine that Bunuel and Dali and Lalu were kind of running together, right? Like at, at some level, um, I have to imagine they were all running around together. Um, oh it, yeah, like the animation style is very sort of Dali-esque, so I would assume they would have some kind of connection to one another, whether Lalu just simply admired him or whether he um, knew him personally. But yeah, for sure they would run in the same circles, I would assume. So it makes sense in a way that this is, uh, that's their opinion of the people that are in charge, I guess, is my, is my big point there. Um, that, that seems to be a common theme in France in the kind of late 60s, early 70s of just like looking down on this kind of ruling class that came out of the war and the arrogance of them and like the way that they treat people that were fighting for them and, and how there's no respect after the war's over. And they go right back to that sort of, you know, tiered system, class system. Mm. Um, so maybe that was just, it just seems like that was in the culture at the time, I guess, amongst the people that were, you know, the more creative kind of leaders of that time. Yeah, well, obviously a big thing in France. Obviously, I mentioned it in the quote um, about the sort of um, French in Algeria. Um, that was a sort of massive thing in, in the 60s, especially. Um, you see it a lot sort of mentioned in French New Wave films, especially Godard films, about the sort of discontent for the French being in Algeria and how they were treating, um, you know, the, the sort of native North Africans. Um, so I think this was just seen to be something that was looked at a lot by the sort of intellectuals uh you know of france of that time and sort of looked down upon how the north africans were being treated by the french government um at, at that time because um, obviously sort of post-world war ii and i know zach will know a lot about this as well post-world war ii a lot of the original sort of colonizers the likes of france and the uk and places like that kind of realized that they were 
doing a lot of double standards between why they were fighting Hitler and what they've been doing themselves for hundreds of years between going in and conquering, you know, different countries and, and so forth and different territories. So after World War II, you would see a lot of like the UK pulling out of India, for example, or um, Belgium pulling out of the Congo. And mm-hmm. France, France pulling out of North Africa was another big one. But how they did it was. Hey, can we take a Can we take a pause for a second? There was some. Yeah, I heard that interference. Did you guys hear that too? Yeah, I didn't hear it from my end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Might have been on your end then. Me and Chris heard it. That's okay. Yeah, it may have it's, been. Gone it's gone now. Anyway, I'll, I'll sort of pick up my points. So I should be able to edit it together. Um. Uh, or like Belgium pulling out of Congo or, or obviously France pulling out of North Africa. But the way France pulled out of North Africa wasn't perfect. They still kind of kept a big chokehold on it. And you see that, you know, show up in a lot of French New Wave. And obviously there's the film The Battle of Algiers as well, which is a a, a pretty popular film the Criterion put out. Um, so I, I'm kind of going on a bit of a tangent here with this, but I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that, yeah, there is definitely a viewpoint from the intellectuals within France that, the way that high society and government treats other people, especially people they may deem to be lesser than them, um, shouldn't be something that is put up with, and you know, it should be it, it should be the, the oppression should be fought against. Basically, is what I'm trying to say. I swear, every podcast we somehow get into World War II history. I think it happens. <laughs> well, when we're talking about film, especially like post-war film, like World War Two just bleeds into every sort of yeah. post-war film, especially in sort of like 20 to 30 years after the war ends. You know, it's it's one of those things you just can't really you can't understate its influence. Yeah, totally. So, so Zach, two quick things. First of all, just to, I never really, nobody ever commented on the fact that you mentioned you like Ray Bradbury. I read a little bit of him growing up, but for me, the big one was uh, Asimov. Okay. Which is a bit ironic because talk about not being emotionally connected. He's like the least emotional of like all the science fiction authors. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I didn't read a lot of him. I, that probably was the reason why. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, I, you know, one of my favorite series is the Foundation series. And I went back and reread it last year. I started to reread it again. And I was, it was I was stunned with like how robotic his writing is. Like it's I still like the series, but there's it, it's almost like it's written by like it's almost like Asimov created the AI that he was warning us about and then had that AI write the book because it's not super emotional at all. Yeah, and that's that's a kind of, you know, not to get too much on a tangent about science fiction writers, but that's kind of a habit I notice in a lot of science fiction. I think Philip K. Dick's like that. I know a lot of people love Philip K. Dick. Yeah. God, I can't stand him as a writer. <laughs> it's so <laughs> hard to read his stuff. It feels like a textbook. Oh, hot take. Hot take. Philip K. Dick, uh, Philip K. Dick not friend of the podcast. Hey, his influence some great movies, but I can't. I can't do the writing. I don't think Philip K. Dick would listen to our podcast as he'd be afraid we'd be beaming it into his brain. <laughs> so true. So I don't think he'd be listening anyway. Um, um, so that was number one, and number two, I just want to quickly touch on 1973. So can, is there is it okay if I do that real quick? Because this is a yeah, sure. We've done this before. 68 is the year that keeps coming up. I, I cannot imagine that 73 is going to come up too many more times. Look at this wildness. So first of all, Zach, I don't know if you ever saw this, but do you remember a few weeks ago when I was ragging on, or not ragging on, when I said I was emotionally destroyed by Belladonna of Sadness? Yes. So 1973. Then we have uh, The Holy Mountain, 
Okay. Fantastic Planet. And then we get into Soylent Green, um, The Exorcist, which, I mean, amazing movie. Uh, just another kind of wild one. Lady Snowblood, The Wicker Man, Westworld. So I can keep going, but my point is that, you know, there was a lot of, of movies that I'm not mentioning too, right? That were just more regular, like The Sting came out in 1973, which is certainly not in this category. <laughs> um, but, you know, Amarcord was another one from Fellini that was kind of pretty out there. I just, I just feel like this, it's, it's an interesting year to think about all of these sort of really out there, crazy movies kind of coming out around, you know, in, in the same time. So that's, uh, if you, I don't know, 73 minutes. You missed two, um, The Wicker Man, which is out there, and uh, yeah. don't, don't Look Now. Uh, which is also very out there in the Nick Rogue film uh, with Donald Sutherland. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I missed you. Right, I missed that. So, yeah. Anyways, I, I don't know what it is, you know, because the the thing about '68, the common theme was how there was no common theme, but there are all these like masterpieces basically coming up in that year, right? And they all lean on the stranger side. Um, there, you know, none of these are your bog standard beginning middle and end here's your plot here's your characters they're going to go on a journey they're all they, they all have some aspect more some more than others the, the holy mountain some more than others will have <laughs> an element of, of strangeness to it but yeah i'm looking through 1973 here and also in 1973 we got the year of the greatest bond theme ever live and let die so that's cool too that's my favorite <laughs> bond theme which you guys are a lot better at like when these movements are and what they're called. And I'm, I'm sure there is one in America, like specifically like the seventies, uh, at least the, on the Western sense that, cause there always seems to be this, um, how do I put it? There's a lot of folk director focused in that. And especially in the seventies, it's not a studio, yeah. not really a, stu you know, the studio's there, but it's a lot of freedom for the director during that time. And I don't know if that had more yes. to do with it that's this it's the new hollywood um new hollywood is the movement you're thinking of that sort of started in the 70s um it was kind of like the first generation of filmmakers who had studied film mm -hmm. so this is where you see the likes of scorsese spielberg friedkin um coppola lucas yeah. this is where they forced this but the era is when they first showed up it was like the first the first sort of self um it was when you first saw films that were sort of self-referential to film. Um, it was, they were, yeah, it was, and obviously it's when you could start getting sort of inversion of film tropes, like the neo-noirs and stuff would start coming out now um, during this era, this this new Hollywood era is what they called it. But yeah, definitely a lot of freedom, like independent film, you know, was like even, uh, I suppose you wouldn't call a lot of these independent films, but they were films that the the Hollywood studio system had well fallen apart by this point. There was no, okay. there was no, this is the, like the producer, there was no David O. Selznick's in this era who were, you know, producers calling the shots or Cecil B. DeMille's, you know, the likes of those guys who, even though they were the producers, they were the ones calling the shots on behalf of the studio. Uh, White shirts, sort of, stay offset sort of deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, that you know, this is, it wasn't that sort of factory feel. This is the time where sort of auteurism, obviously after the 60s, when the auteur theory became big with, obviously with Truffaut and Godard, they were big into this auteur theory. And it, obviously 
went through the rest of the sort of film um, zeitgeist, this idea that the director is king and Hollywood started to buy into that as well and started just giving directors money to tell interesting stories away from the sort of, you know, factory studio system of some guy writes a script based on a book, this producer finds someone to do all the work and then we put it out kind of way. Yeah, and I, I feel like we have to at least briefly mention Cassavetes had kind of proven that you could make oh, this yeah. work as well. Um, yeah, Cassavetes is another big one from that era, absolutely. So anyways, it's kind of that, that culmination of forces. But I think we've, we're getting far off of Fantastic Planet now. Yes. I think it's probably a good place to... I don't, know, I don't have anything else to say on specifically on the Savage Planet. There's three certainties in life, death, taxes, and they live by film going off on crazy tangents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, welcome to Collection Corner. This week we are very excited, just as we did last week. We had a special guest. Uh, Tom Sladek, who currently works at Oscilloscope Labs in their uh, home video department. Uh, he was kind enough to give us time. Uh, we were so excited to talk to Tom. In addition to the great work that Oscilloscope's doing, we had a chance to talk to uh, a gentleman who's been responsible for sales and distribution, going back to Tommy Boy Entertainment, uh, Caroline Distribution, ATO Records, before he started at Oscilloscope. So, Tom is a veteran of both music and film, and he brought some fascinating perspectives from both worlds into the interview. And uh, you'll a little sneak peek at the end. I hope that he's going to have a chance to introduce us to some filmmakers. So they might be some future friends of the podcast as well. So we really appreciate Tom. And uh, here we go. He has such a, a pretty tenured history. Uh, so it's really uh, it's cool that uh, you're willing to, to meet a young podcast that just wants to kind of talk about collecting. So I really appreciate that. Well. You know, I dug around the website a little bit, listened to some of the um, podcasts that you released earlier, and it sounds like it's been fun. And I think it's great that what you guys are doing and, you know, happy to be part of it and excited to help in any way that I can. <laughs> the, the market's a good place to start, I suppose. Um, like, obviously, since COVID, like, have you guys seen a change in the market? I assume with theaters closing and things like that. If, I, if I'm aware, I think you you were involved in the theater side of Oscilloscope as well, Actually, uh, as I'm well not. as the home. No, I, My access to the theater is only through any kind of like virtual cinema stuff that we do. Oh, okay. Um, I suppose that's probably booming at the moment then, I suppose, virtual. Well, stuff. you'd be surprised. Really? Um, initially, we had a great start, um, you know, for better or for worse, we had a, a really interesting film called St. Francis that um, we premiered in um, mid-February last year, 20, 2020, like little weeks pre-COVID. Um, and, you know, the numbers were good in New York. At the, we opened the Angelica the following week. We did Los Angeles. Numbers were pretty good. Um, felt very positive about the reviews that were coming in and the word of mouth, the ticket sales, everything was, you know, pretty, you know, looking up. And then, you know, mid March, we had planned to roll out into about 50 other markets. And by Friday night, mm -hmm. almost every single one of those markets and theaters had shut down. However, by Saturday, we had pivoted very quickly to a virtual cinema, uh, motif, I guess, method of, you know, you know, monetizing the film. And it did fantastic. 
Wow. Um, again, I think it's the the nature of the film and the fact that everybody was housebound and didn't know what to do. Yeah. They wanted to watch something and they wanted to watch something new. And the fact that since we partnered with theaters, the idea that, you know, the theaters would still make money from a, a stream and probably make more than they would from a ticket sale um, was, you know, a big one for everybody, you know, and again, that worked great. A couple of the things didn't do quite as well. I think a lot had to do with the amount of outreach that the theaters themselves would do to their like local film societies or their customer base. Something that we're pretty good at, um, but you know, we're not in Austin, we're not in Chicago, we're not in you know, Denver, but there are small theaters that are in those places. And one would think that the audiences in those markets would be you know, up for supporting the local people and seeing something new. And they were initially, but I think there was a, a quick burn. And by midsummer, the whole virtual cinema piece, not just for us, but for pretty much everybody else, unless it was like a Disney film or a, a comic book movie, pretty much cratered. Just kind a couple of like of, the... Yeah, a couple of exceptions. We, the Blind Melon doc that we released did fantastic. Probably did better in a virtual cinema world than it would have had it had a what we call a legitimate theatrical real IRL in real life uh, <laughs> theater, in-person theater thing. So do you reckon just a novelty wore off from the sort of virtual theater experience? Because yeah. obviously we're in a world now where streaming is so prevalent like Netflix and Amazon Prime yeah. and Hulu and all those. I'm kind of surprised that it would have burned out so quickly. Maybe it was the market or like, I suppose most people who go see independent film are probably not the same people who would sit down and binge watch a TV show on Netflix. So maybe that was the issue. I think the issue is that first, I think the novelty wore off pretty quickly and what was available uh, that would appeal to an indie film consumer probably wasn't there. Yeah. Um, again, they, anything that they tried, that the studios tried to put out front and center tended to be more mass market and less, you know, specialty, less niche, yeah. you know, less things that we're better known for. It's true though. I've got my, I still have my ticket somewhere. I went to, when the Angelica opened up in Dallas, it was like 2001, mm -hmm. I think. The first movie they showed was Rafifi. And I still have my ticket. I was one of the first people to see the first showing. And uh, it, there is something a little bit different than just going to like the movies. When you go to like these art houses, you know, you, there's a different experience there for sure. Yeah. Um, have you seen the transition then in that sense? Has it helped uh, the home video market? Has it been better for the home videos? Uh, actually it has, if you use home video definition in the broadest sense from shiny discs to cable VOD rental, to nice. iTunes transactional, to Amazon transactional, to even the ad supported stuff like Tubi or Pluto or Voodoo or mm -hmm. any of the other tragically named services. <laughs> um, there was a huge increase in those particular platforms that really did sustain, not just when the pandemic ramped up and the US shut down, basically um, you would have expected the numbers to fall off precipitously as the year went on and things kind of loosened up or people got a little more careless and would go out in the summer and the fall and they didn't, uh, the numbers stayed real, real strong. And I think it's just a, it kind of forced a, a sea change in the way that, you know, people are engaging with the content. And, you know, I, I'm 
it, it bums me out to not have a, a comfort level with theaters right now, even though a couple are open where we are. Um, and it's going to take some time for people to kind of get to that point again, but it's, it's crucial to what we do. And, you know, it's a big part of, you know, creating a story for the films and the filmmakers that we release. That might be, Adam, are you okay? I have a question kind of around, um, you know, rights holders. Cause when we speak to like, let's call it, uh, the first interview you did was, you know, the Arbellos now Deaf Crocodile team or Fun City, they're not actually making the content, right? They're not actually behind any of the production of the right. content. And so for them, it's just acquiring the rights and sort of like putting out a, a release. But I feel like that story is a little bit different for, for y'all. Do, do you mind just sharing, you know, kind of the extent you can kind of how y'all engage with producers and content and rights and all that? Well, our model isn't tremendously different than theirs. We're a distributor. Um, when the company was founded, I think Adam Yock of Beastie Boys, rest in peace, he did want um, an, an element of production to be started at Oscilloscope. And that actually hasn't really borne out much. Uh, we do um, take production credits on certain films, things that we see that are in a not finished state or we have relationships with the filmmakers um, from previous projects and we'll come on as you know, you know, producers in a more traditional sense. But as far as you know, an actual production company, we are not that at this point. Okay, okay. I suppose that kind of brings me to another question on that then, because obviously uh, doing my research, obviously I know about Adam being a co-founder and then the, the other co-founder then David Fenkel um, went on then to go co-found A24, yep. which would be in that kind of model of distributor slash producer. Um, obviously, they, they would be quite hands-on. Is that something that you guys maybe sort of want to become? Because obviously, they've become almost like a cult nowadays. Right. A24 has their own dedicated fan base where people will only watch their films. So is that something that you guys kind of maybe, like the kind of model that you want to strive for as well? Uh, I think it depends on who you ask. I think okay, if Adam fair. had lived, that would absolutely be his his desire for the company. But you know the the reality of the situation and the fact that you know we're still very much a boutique place. Um, the amount of capital that a company like A twenty four has to chase production, even if they're small productions, production is expensive. Um, and it's, it's not the kind of thing that we are, are built to do right now. Hmm. Interesting. So obviously- they're, look, good, looking, they're, they're very good at what they do. And I can only say good yeah. things about David Fenkel because he hired me. Um, <laughs> he, he introduced me to Adam, so I'm, I'm grateful to him. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, they're, they're good at what they do. And I'd like to think that we're good at what we do in a, in a different way on a smaller scale. I guess. Yeah, like, like I have to give full disclosure. I, I obviously don't have any of your releases being in here in Ireland. Um, it's something I'm going to try and amend. I have gone region free recently, but I was looking through your past releases. And one thing that really jumped out at me was how diverse the filmmakers that you guys put out are. Almost nearly every second filmmaker in your release list is, you know, either a woman or maybe a person of color or not American. It seems to be super diverse, which a lot of boutique labels don't really tend to do. There's a lot of criticism on you know, places like Criterion or Arrow who don't really put out a lot of, you know, films by female filmmakers. And you guys seem to be just, as long as the film is good, we don't really care. And that, I, I think that's awesome. Like, obviously you put out some Lynn Ramsey films, some Kelly Reichardt, great filmmakers. And 
it's good that they're able to, they're able to get exposure through you guys as well. You know, it's funny because you had asked me to prepare, you know, some thoughts and about our approach or philosophy. And if it's good, it definitely gets a look. If it's meaningful in some way, if it moves us in a way that, you know, makes us happy or sad or angry or wants to make, you know, affect some change, help the filmmakers tell that story. That's what, that's what we'll do. That's, you know, we'll, be engaged with the with the film. We'll be engaged with the filmmakers. We want to help put out whatever message they're trying to get out into the world in a positive way, in a similar fashion. And that's pretty much what Adam had really wanted. I know that he had a very broad eclectic taste, not just with music but with films. And you know, we would talk about things, and you know, we talk about the latest you know blocks, you know, box office blockbuster. We talk about whatever sitcom we watched that particular night. Um, or, you know, just geek out on, you know, what kind of job, you know, the company that released Matteo Garone's Gamora did because he loved that film and thought it could have done better. Um, not throwing shade at anybody, but you know. <laughs> Was that Criterion? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> They're good people. We love them too. There's a, there's a film on, on Reddit that's been getting a lot of love recently that y'all put out called We Are Little Zombies. Have you happened to see that one? Oh, absolutely. And that is sort of a quintessential oscilloscope movie because it is bananas. Yeah. Um, you, you cannot describe it to people that haven't seen a lot of international content or understand what you know um what's what it's like to be a kid what it's like to have loss and it seems like there's a little bit of a through line to that movie into things like you know dear zachary which is also about loss in a major in a very different way um but also summer 1993 um that you know kind of it's an emotional experience and it's a moving experience but with you know we are little zombies. There's the musical element and the fantastical piece that just make it that much more interesting to us. And I hopefully to the film goers as well. And that's one of the ones that I think really did suffer for the lack of having a legitimate theatrical release because there were literally no theaters open to show this movie. So we got lucky. We were able to do a couple drive-ins, but that's one that, you know, is driven by reviews. It's driven by word of mouth and, for better or for worse, the mainstream press or the film press um, tends to look askance at things that are just digital. That's going to have to change because yeah. we're in that world right now. Um, but that was one, you know, it's, we held out as long as we could to give it as big a theatrical push as we possibly could. And it really didn't amount to much uh, of anything other than the fact that the people who saw it and engaged with it loved it. And it's beautiful and crazy I'm, I'm thinking of like in the early 2000s like a lot of the Takashi Miike films that were coming to the U.S. Um, they had that kind of buzz about them right because they would go to these showings and you they may they may have only been in 15 screens or 20 screens across the country but they were sold out every night and yeah. there was like in those communities there was a big buzz about it um, yeah it would have been a lot more fun to work on that movie had the world been open yeah because it, it's so vibrant and it's so funny and it's so bent that there was a lot of good ideas that we had 
to try to kind of drive some interest in the film from a, a more casual to a more casual fan base. But, you know, as you know, as we're going to beat this to death, but because of COVID and the fact that there wasn't a lot of opportunity from the theatrical piece to have that happen just made it almost impossible. <coughs> Excuse me. And like in normal time, obviously, I know you, you were in the music industry originally before sort mm -hmm. of uh, moving over onto film. Like in, in normal times, like when you have a, an independent film by a filmmaker that maybe doesn't have a lot of sort of recognition, brand recognition, whatever you want to call it. Would, would you guys market that in the same way, like an indie artist, you know, you might have a, you know, an indie band or something and you'll ask your friends if they heard of them and they'll say no, but yet they can go and sell out shows because they have that particular market. Would those sort of overlap really and, you know, how the thing, things will be marketed together? In, in a lot of ways, there are some similarities. I mean, the biggest commonality between indie film world, the, the way we see it and the indie music market that I worked in and had for, for many, many years uh, is that you kind of rely on the artist to help create the message and put that message out, not just the art that they're making, but the engagement with the fans. Either you have one fan or you have a hundred fans. How do you make more fans? Because ultimately that's going to be more meaningful to your next piece of art or the people that have an opportunity to see the one that you've already created. So it's almost like you would put a band on tour to do in stores while they're in the market. They're you know, down for a couple hours, you know, before sound check, before the show starts, why not engage with the fans, even in a small scale, go to a record store, play a small set, uh, sign some autographs, answer some questions. Now, People engage with music in a very different way than they do with film, especially when it comes to like hard goods or, or physical product. Um, but while movies are still in theaters or when they're just you know, initially released, we have in the past and will probably continue to do so is to lean as heavily as possible on the filmmakers, sometimes cast members to do Q and A's, to engage with the audience um, in person. Um, and that's one of the things that we kind of got lost um, in the COVID world. Mm. so like doing a show and then you know having maybe like a half yeah. an hour q a at the end of the show ask yeah. you know our audience ask questions things like sure. that screening you cool. screen the movie then after the screening the filmmaker the producer cast member sticks around and answers questions from the audience or it's moderated by a local writer which usually makes you know that much more of a connection to the local market yeah i suppose that, that writer will bring in his own audience or, or his or her own audience and then it grows from there kind of way that's that's the idea sure cool cool that was uh that was one of the things i miss about i lived down in austin texas you know alamo draft house has been here for many years and they were they were really good about that they would try to bring in the kind of creative talent whenever they could yeah i used to do um in stores at um waterloo records yeah really um like ben queller who actually who's moved down at, i think he still lives in austin but he before just after he moved down to austin he we released one of his records and it was a country flavored record and that was a lot of fun and you know just having that kind of level of access to the fans just creates more desire to learn more about what your artist is doing or what, what year was that do you remember i might have been at that show what year was that it was either 2008 or 2009 yeah i think i was at that show actually okay <laughs> yeah, we, we probably 
waved at each other or something. Awesome. <laughs> oh, what a great connection. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I remember, I remember that, that release party. Um, so there, I was curious, you know, what, one of the things we like to uh, ask about just, just more out of curiosity, right? Cause neither, none of us are actually in the film industry or kind of in this business. Uh, this is a hobby for us. So I'm just curious, like how you kind of approach restoration. Do y'all have an in-house, um, you know, a restoration team or, or where that's necessary? Do you work with other folks? We usually work with other people. Um, certain films you know are directed to us by like maybe the Sundance Institute or by other people that are interested in restoring lost pieces of art or things that were not um, properly exposed on initial release so um, it it's less of, uh, of like a true restoration project in a physical sense where we take a print and then recreate it, restrike it, whatever. Again, almost everything's digital now anyway, um, but it's more about how do we re-engage writers, consumers, film goers, bookers, curators into the um, nuances of this particular film. So, you know, Tom, I'm, I'm curious, you know, outside of Oscilloscope, uh, are you a collector? Is it something that's a hobby of yours, either music or film or both? Uh, I'm not nearly to the degree that I used to be. Okay. Um, again, life throws things at you like wives and children and houses and stuff. And every time you make a move, it seems like you have less. <laughs> I maxed out at about, ew, I want to say maybe 6,000 CDs. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I, I had a lot of records as a kid and I ended up foolishly you know selling and upgrading to compact discs back in the day um but i had probably about 150 of those at one point in addition to the compact discs and then i probably had about another 150 um don't laugh laser discs nice okay um, no that's cool however uh you know kids get bigger they need more space you don't engage with the media in the same way that you did when you were 20 as opposed to when you're 50. Yeah. So um, the collection has been shrinking. Um, but at the same time, you know, I still am very much a part of that mindset. And like some of my favorite bands, you know, you just, you, you buy everything that's connected to them. You know, for my, one of my very favorite bands is a band from London called Saint Etienne. And they are basically two guys that were dorks like me. They collected mm -hmm. records. They wrote about records. They DJed. They started making their own records and they hooked up with different, you know, singers initially and then found Sarah, you know, very early on. And they've been a, a going concern for, you know, 30 plus years now. And they will release any manner of, 12 inch white label seven inch with different b-sides remixes i have wow i think sarah did a, a solo record and i think i have four versions of it because there are two different ones in the u.s there's a japanese one and there's a uk one and every mix is a little bit different and again if you're a super fan you kind of can tell it's like oh that's you know there's there's more bass on this or like where did that you know melodica come from it's buried in the other mix you can't hear that um, and they tend to, uh, you know, I wouldn't say they exploit them because that would be, you know, kind of mean, but they, they definitely know who their market is. And the fact that there's all this stuff out there, it's, 
it makes it hard when I mean, you have a limited like disposable income as well to like buy the coffee table book that they put out or yeah. the uh, <clears throat> third or fourth deluxe reissue on clear vinyl uh, with <laughs> you know more B sides. Um, you could go broke. There's um, the movie kind of equivalent of that for me is a lot of horror movies will have like eight releases on every format. And so yeah. like, you know, there's this British label called Second Sight that just put out a Dawn of the Dead release that looks amazing. But I literally have like six copies of Dawn of the Dead. I just can't justify another <laughs> one yet. Maybe one day, but. I'd say yeah. don't go with that one until you go to 4K or the, the 4K release seems to be like the definitive release okay. of Dawn of okay. the Dead. That's right. right. It's funny because we're kind of going backwards, you know, from a music standpoint, we're, we're definitely going backwards in quality because I mean, vinyl was fine. I never really had a big problem. I didn't have like a huge rig. It was not like an audiophile, but had a decent turntable. Um, and then CDs came and, you know, obviously the audio quality improves tremendously. And then it's kind of shifting back to a degraded audio form. Again, nothing wrong with the, vinyl hounds and the crate diggers and people that dig that stuff and that's fine um but you're also dealing with streams and again as much as i use spotify and youtube music and all the other streaming services the audio quality just isn't there and again i was not like a huge gearhead but even i can hear the difference so it's you go it, it's it's strange in the way that you know people are kind of becoming less engaged with the quality and more about the collectability of it and the fact that, you know, someone's curating this and it's not just people at the record stores or people at iTunes. It's you know, people that you engage with online mm -hmm. on the Reddit threads and everything else. I think you brought up an, ex uh, an excellent point that comes into filmmaking as well, with the, the streaming versus physical aspect, mm -hmm. like obviously we, we started as a criterion channel podcast. That's what we are for the most part we, we talk about films we watch on the criterion channel but obviously the streaming quality on there just doesn't match having the physical blu-ray it's it's just it's just so much better and that's why we're both massive collectors as well and a lot of people on you almost would see like a, a divide on the subreddit where you'll have people who will just collect and maybe they'll maybe go to the channel to test out the film to see if they like it and if they like it they'll go and buy it rather than continue to stream it because they want to have the best quality um and you mentioned about like obviously you know putting out different releases on vinyl and have slightly different mixes to sort of see and hear different things. This sort of brings me into a debate that's been happening now um, on on Criterion regarding Criterion's release of Wong Kar Wai's films. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with the whole debate going on, um, where essentially Wong went in and changed a lot of stuff. Um, Is that right? Wow, I was not aware of that. Yeah, he changed color grading. He even changed the aspect ratio of, of another one of his films. Yeah, so wow, completely changed the original vision, and the original versions are not are no longer being printed. They're not going to be available anymore. So. We, we've been asking a lot of my Blu-ray of In the Mood for Love is collectible now. It will be. Yeah, that one's still <laughs> in print. Um, but in a few years, I would keep hold of that. If it's ain't, if it's yeah. gonna be like anything Chunking Express, you'll be able to put that on eBay for a a, a nice sum. Right. Um, but just just from your perspective, then, uh, you know, as obviously part of a, a film distribution company, in terms of a filmmaker maybe going back and making changes, and suppose you know, linking that into your experience with music where maybe like a remaster of an album will come out and it will sound slightly different to how it originally was. Like, what, what, what's your what's your view? What's your opinion on that? 
Well, it's basically up to the artists. If they, for whatever reason, feel that the story that they were trying to tell or the message they were trying to get across is going to be received better or understood more fully in a way that is slightly different than the way the previous fans engaged with it, well, that's kind of up to them. And if that's what they want to do, it's up to us to help push that message out. Um, I don't personally don't have a problem with it at all. And I think it's it's obviously very different with film other than the you know very specific instances that you called about like Wong Kar Wai changing color gradings and everything else. Um, what we see is like retelling of stories since we do so many docs is that sometimes there's open-ended questions or unresolved issues in some of these documentary films. And then you go back and re-engage it 10 years you ask what happened to the protagonist, what happened to the people, what happened to the story. And then at that point, I think it would be interesting to go back. And in some cases, some of our filmmakers have done that uh, and add to the story. And again, I think it just, you know, continues the conversation and gets people more engaged or exposes that many more people to it. Cool. That's a cool perspective. Yeah. That's the goal again, anyway, right? Yeah, um, your perspective on it pretty much matches Wong's. I'm going to paraphrase here, but he literally wrote a message. Obviously, he was aware of the backlash prior to it being released. He wrote a message in, in the packaging saying something along the lines of, you know, he's, he's not the same man he was when he released it and you're not the sure. same audience. So let's watch these new films together and make these new memories. So your vision seems to obviously match Wong's. I'm still, I, I, I it's hard for me to sort of have an opinion on it because um, obviously I, I'm not involved in the creative process at all. I can understand both points where obviously from a film preservation side of things, this is why we buy stuff. It's why I buy Blu-rays because I want to be able to watch these films that are made 50, 100 years ago, whatever. And then when you do something, when you make a change, are you really preserving the original vision or are you creating a new film from that? And I, I kind of have these two conflicting uh, opinions in, in my own head about it where, yeah, look, he's the artist, it's his vision, what have you. But at the same time, you're kind of taking away the original piece by changing it, if that makes sense. Well, I think it's just an opportunity for people to look at both. And if mm -hmm. the filmmaker or the artist is you know, conflicted enough about the original presentation you know, with the passage of time and they feel that it's a story that can be told or a song that can be sung or a, a track that could be you know, recreated in a way that means more to them X amount of years in the future, then I think we just have to roll with it. Cool. You, um, you talked about the amount of docs that y'all put out. I, I have to ask, um, as a fan, if you know the answer to this, the not, a, not as a someone on the back end, but as a fan, sure. uh, how much, where does reality end and exit through the gift shop? And where is it, where is it a, a narrative and where is it a doc? That is a question that we used to kick around the office quite a bit. And yeah. I think we felt like Banksy exists, but almost in a collective sense because of the kind of work that was done that continues to be done, the way that it gets out there in a very quick manner, uh, but seemingly you know, ubiquitous and everywhere at the same time, a single individual doing that, almost impossible. Um, and doing it in complete secrecy. Right. And the fact that nothing could be approved from the packaging to the inserts to anything else that we did for that DVD and Blu-ray, 
uh, could have been done without his approval. <laughs> uh, it, it, it seems like it took an awful long time to get his approval. If he was an individual, I don't think it would have taken like literal weeks to get this, some of this stuff turned around. If he could be in Singapore tomorrow, putting a new installation in the middle of the street and then France the next day, it wouldn't take him weeks or months to get you a simple response on the, on a packaging decision. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Got you. Got you. Yeah. That, that is the most affirming thing I've heard in a long time. That, that matches my <laughs> theory very well. Unless, unless he's just a bad at delegating or he gets distracted easily. He could have been busy with an installation. We don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't still, think we'll ever know. Yeah, exactly. I still show that to people today. It's just like a, a, an example of one of the most interesting docs I've ever seen. Uh, especially just the way it ends. Anyways, I, I just, I think it's, I think it's beautiful the way it was. Oh, it's, a, it's a great movie. No question about it. Yeah. Um, and we just, it was great to, to even be a small part of it. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Sorry, Adam, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, no, it's awesome. Um, I, I haven't seen the movie, but the idea of Banksy's kind of, always kind of fascinates me, the, the idea of he is almost an, an enigma. I say he, I, obviously figuratively, um, right. because we don't know. Maybe it did start as just one guy and it kind of became, as you said, a collective from there. But yeah, it's such, a, such an enigma, the idea of Banksy's. So I'll definitely, I'll need to watch the doc um, to, to learn a bit more about it because I've always been kind of fascinated with the idea of it. Yeah. It's, it's a fun watch and a lot of docs are, are drudgery and tough to get through. This is not one of them. This is, this is about a fun evening with a movie as you're going to spend. Even so if you know nothing of you know, modern art or collecting or anything else. It's so just, it's kind of... It's just the, fun. It's kind of the antithesis of another documentary you put out called Dear Zachary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned that one because um, there's a, a TikTok artist, thread, whatever you want to call it, um, that posited, you know, what's a movie that makes you like this, like with the tears streaming down your face. And um, somebody else engaged with her and said, it's Dear Zachary, no question about it. This destroyed me, I've seen it twice. And that got like 345,000 likes and <laughs> it took off from like doing, you know, maybe a, a couple of DVDs at Amazon to like 50 in a day. Uh, the amount of streams just took off like a rocket. And that happens all the time. I mean, Chrissy Teigen, you know, tweeted about the movie several years back. It just destroyed her. And again, anytime people engage in that way with it, you know, it just gets that much more exposure. And the transactional business, the rental business, the streams just went out of control. Um, yeah, it's without spoiling it for anybody who hasn't seen it, if you want a good cry, that's your movie. Yeah. Harrowing, harrowing film. Yeah. Uh, I suppose what you said is interesting there, but obviously if even a minor celebrity gets on board, it can completely change the projection of a, of a story. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a series that came out called Normal People. Um, it's a, it was yeah, uh, based so. on a, yeah, it's based on a book by an Irish writer, and then it was produced. They 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 produced it uh, a TV series at the BBC did, and it was it was supposed to air on BBC Three, which is like their third rated network, and it wasn't even going to air over here in Ireland, despite the fact of being set there. But mm -hmm. it completely blew up overnight because Hulu 
started streaming it in America and the Kardashians were tweeting all about it. And it's a really amazingly made series. It was made by Lenny Abramson, uh, who's a great filmmaker from Ireland. Um, but it completely blew up and it's an incredible story. It's like 10, 10 episodes long, really beautifully shot, really beautifully acted. Um, but yeah, it completely blew up. BBC weren't expecting it. They, as said, they produced it on their third rate network. They weren't going to be showing it. It was supposed to be just this one-off little series and it just completely became this international sensation just because Khloe Kardashian happened to stumble across it on Hulu and tweeted about how she was crying watching it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, one of those things. If someone, one person gets their hands on something small, it can become something big. Yeah. We see that all the time and it's actually very helpful. Yeah. Or can be anyway. (laughs) I suppose you could also be negative depending on who's liking it and who's watching it. That's also true. Um, cool. Well, yeah. So, Tom, I guess if there was a, um, if anybody's not familiar with oscilloscope, oscilloscope yet, uh, by just name, right? I'm sure they know your films, but if if anybody's not there, how would you want people to know? Like when they think of oscilloscope uh, films, like is there is there a way that you would like describe that or say that to them? You know, this is a question that always comes up, and it's almost impossible to answer because. It's, we're not a preservation house. Uh, we don't do genre typically. We release films and work with filmmakers that have a message and we respond to it in a way that we hope other people will. We want people to think, we want people to feel, um, we want things to be meaningful. Um, but at the same time, there has to be a through line of some quality and what that is, I don't know. Maybe it is simple as quality. It's a well-made film or it's beautiful to look at or you know, it, it tells a story that you know, resonates. But there's je ne sais pas, je ne sais quoi. I don't know what it is. That's not what it is. I don't know what it is. Um, but... Again, there, there's a through line in everything that we do. And it's about relating to, relating the film and the filmmaker to the outside world and trying to make a meaningful connection with the messages that they're trying to get out there. And hopefully it's a positive message or one that's gonna help make a positive change or at least put your mind in a different place, at least for a little while. So a, a boutique distribution house that focuses on empathy driven stories that, that potentially come from underrepresented artists? That's a very nice way to put it. I don't know if it's if, <laughs> if it's that specific, but but sure, why not? Chris will take commission on coining your 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 new thing that you post at the back of all of your your Blu-ray releases. <laughs> it look good on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> a Banksy t-shirt. Um, that's my only yeah. opinion. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's a great description. And again, without actually owning any of your releases, but looking at the films you release, that seems to be pretty much what it, I, I couldn't find a common thread. Obviously, um, obviously, like I said, we're originally Criterion based. So, but again, Criterion don't really go by genre. But obviously, preservation is massive for them. Yeah. We're we're big Arrow fans. Obviously, Arrow released a lot of cult stuff and horror stuff. Um, but yeah, I couldn't really find a common thread. So uh, your description is is interesting. That it's if, if basically if a filmmaker wants to tell a, or wants to tell a story that has a message um that's that's the most important thing really rather regardless of genre or or medium and it's basically a taste driven company if we like it 
and we think that there's a way that we can engage other people, then we'll give it a second look. We'll, we'll give it a shot. Um, we, we, like I said, we do rely a lot on engaging with the filmmakers and their team and whatever fan base they have active to kind of help push those messages out, at least let people know that this film is in the world and where to find it and, and how to engage with it. Um, and it's not just about, you know, a quick churn. We, things definitely have a long tail um, where we work. Awesome. What's your, what's your favorite way to consume film? Uh, physical disc, I, streaming? I still like going to the movies. Going to the it's movie. been a while, but um, I, 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 that would be my choice. Um, second to that would be DVD or Blu-ray. I mean, the, the picture is so much better than streaming. Um, I like the tactile thing that you get when you crack open a box and you smell the ink or whatever and hold it in your hand and you examine it and you put it in then you have all the extras and it's, you can't just go to the next thing. You have to engage with it in a, a physical way before you can go on to the next thing. It makes you actually kind of like, you have to take it out of the plate to think about it a little bit. It's like, well, what did this mean to me? Yeah. What is this going to mean to somebody else? Who do I want to show this to? Who is this going to mean something to? And, uh, As opposed to just like, well, you know, I'm going to watch another episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Again, a great show and we enjoy it, but it just doesn't stop. Yeah. Mm. And it's starting in 10 seconds and it counts down and then it just goes automatically, right? Um, I, I what interacted with Arch for the first time is whenever Dookie came out, whatever that album, whenever, whatever year that came out, Green Day's Dookie. Uh, 1993? Yeah, that sounds exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. Cause I would have been 11 then. And I, and I opened it up and there was this thing in the back of it, which was like other bands that they were thanking, right? And there was, that turned me on to basically the next 10 years of my life of punk music, <laughs> just all from like the, every single band had the bands that they were thinking. And like, that was the way that I discovered music until, yeah, I mean, until the internet got, got more ubiquitous, you know, it was, that was the way that we discovered music. And I, so that, because that was my first experience with sort of, you know, music and art, then, then when movies came out, my favorite thing has always been holding the DVD and opening it up and looking at the, looking at the book that's put together and seeing the packaging, like you said, holding in, there's some creative packaging that's out there. Um, and then even something as simple as just opening the tray when it's done and putting it back in and putting it back on the shelf is a very satisfying feeling, I think. Yeah, it feels like you're done. Yeah. But it also gives you a minute to, to, to let it marinate, you know, to pause and, and ruminate a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, and now we're back. We're going to talk about The Ascent from 1977, uh, about two Soviet partisans on a mission to gather food uh, to contend with the cold weather, the occupying Germans, and their own psyches. So what do everybody think? Uh, well, I, I love this film. It was my second time watching it. I watched it for the first time. I did like a, a mini double feature on Larissa Shapitko last summer where I watched her film Wings, and then I watched The Ascent. Because uh, they were part of the, this uh, an eclipse series, a Criterion did that was also on the Criterion channel, and I like this one more than Wings, and I, I love this film. It's it's incredible. It's powerful. It's well directed, well made. The acting is phenomenal, especially from the two leads. I just think film kind of has everything you'd want in a in an anti-war sort of. Um, I wouldn't even call it a war film a lot of the time. It's just more about like a psychological drama. 
mm-hmm. a lot of the time um because obviously it's just it's about their sheer will of survival and you know what the the lengths that these two people and, and other people within the film will go to try and survive in in a very desolate time um so yeah i, I love this film i thought i think larissa shapiko who unfortunately this was her last film she only got to make three before she passed away in a car accident and I think the world was robbed uh, of what would have been a fantastic career if she had continued to to live and make more films. Yeah, I the, well, I'll get, I probably liked it. Well, Zach, I guess I'm curious to hear your opinion. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if I liked it the least, but I basically loved the movie. I, I felt again, I it's like the theme of me this week. I felt a bit disconnected because I felt like it was structured in kind of a in a way that was a bit sort of intro to ethics classy in the way they constructed sort of the point of the film. But it was the most interesting ethics class I've ever been to. And it was the most beautifully shot. And it was uh, by far an amazing film. And, you know, we don't really get a chance to know much about Belarus. So just interesting to hear, you know, this this like near neighbor to Russia's kind of perspective and between this and come and see. Um, so I, I liked all of that. Uh, but what, what did you think, Zach? Well, um, so just full disclosure, I'm an absolute sucker for black and white films and full frame that came out when that wasn't normal anymore. It, I don't know if it was a budget constraint. I just tend to really like it. So looks great. I love, I love the um, black and white and the snow. It makes it feel even like bleaker than it already is. Um, you know, it, it, and I, I really like what you said, Adam, about it not really feeling like a war film. Because, you know, when I was done, I was like, I mean, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite war films, but I really love the movie because I guess, cause I'm shallow and I like to see, you know, some carnage and some absolute battles and stuff like that. <laughs> so I did like that you brought that up, that it's not really a traditional war film in that sense, but um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I really liked it. Um, I do agree with you, Chris, that it's, you know, <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to say ham fisted after we talked about fantastic planet, I guess, but you know, it's definitely, I think so. I don't know who said it in the thing, but talking about when they were 21, they would have been in love with it. It would have been one of their favorite movies. And I can definitely feel that. And it, this isn't a criticism. I mean, that's it's a great it has it brings up a lot of great points and it brings up the kind of makes you see the how like people switch sides and, you know, how they become traitors to the even people they know and they, you know, they've tried to save and that that sort of sense. So that's a really interesting angle to take it. And you know, it just, if it sounds bleak, it only gets bleaker as it goes. <laughs> yeah. Like the idea of it being like an ethical film or, you know, a film about sort of ethics and uh, personal philosophies and stuff, you know, makes sense for, for the quote. I don't know if you had a chance to read our reviews on, on it, Zach. I know obviously you only literally just finished the film very recently, uh, but I, I included a quote from Larissa Shapiko in, in my review, um, which just to sort of um, just sort of go at the very end well actually i'll read the whole quote because it's a really interesting quote so she said all motion pictures are personal but the desire to make the ascent was almost a physical need if i had not shot this picture it would have been a catastrophe for me i could not find any other material with which i could transmit my views on life on the meaning of life so the idea of this film essentially being a way of projecting how shapiko felt about war and comradeship and patriotism um that the the film was almost a vehicle for her views essentially which is why you can kind of come across 
you know, like as Chris said, a kind of like an ethics class. That's why it comes across like that, because this was essentially her way of projecting her 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 view on life. Well, and one thing I think is really interesting, and I do like the way it's framed because, you know, it, it's, it has to be tempting to put the perspective, and I don't know their names. I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend <laughs> I do. But the one who is, you know, trying to do, I guess, you could, the one who was shot in the leg, it's really, it could be really easy to kind of frame it from him because he is the, hum, the more humani- humanitarian of the yeah. two. Not saying the other guy's necessarily bad, because you, you kind of get where, you know, Self-preservation is something that lives in everyone. So the idea that, you know, we don't need, I don't think anybody knows what decision between those two you'll make until you're there. Yeah. Like you, you you can talk about all day that you would know what you would do, but I just don't think that's true. And I think that's a really interesting angle to keep it with him because he makes the decision. I think a lot of people would make and they would deny they would make. Yeah, like I think with this film, it's probably one where we're kind of going to have to talk about the ending to really get a full sort of, you know, be able to talk about it as a full picture film. Um, but the character of, of Sotnikov, the one who, spoiler alert, who, who doesn't sort of turn and, you know, dies as a Russian and doesn't turn to become a Nazi like, um, like Ryback, his companion, does. It won't surprise you to learn that when casting that character Shapiko asked her casting director to find a man who looks like Jesus Christ okay that, that, okay. that was her obviously all the said very, stuff makes sense yeah obviously it's the Soviet Union there's this is an atheistic regime so she had to say very quietly but she told her casting director to find someone who looks like Jesus Christ to essentially play that role that and he, you put it perfectly he said you know to have him look more humanitarian because I suppose that, the idea is to maybe try and get the audience this way with this guy who's essentially like Jesus dying for his sins really at the end uh, of the film uh, while the character of Ryback is like the Judas he turns his back uh, on you know the, on his country and the rest of the people and obviously regrets it afterwards um, to the point where he tries to commit suicide so um, yeah I think it's pretty obvious you know what what Shapika was trying to say with with the way that these two characters are portrayed. But I, I feel like too, it's important to mention the first half of the movie and talking about the ending, because I, one of the things I did really love about it was we had the sense that there was, they were just desperate. Like everything was just tough, right? Out in the cold, no food, no weapons to really fight with very low bullets. They were, you know, these two guys were going out on a scouting mission to try to find food because otherwise they were just eating those little beans or peas or whatever that they were kind of giving each other. Like we had, I think that, that she did a fantastic job of painting the desperation that they were in before they had to then go make this tough decision. And that's, that was probably my favorite part of the film from the story perspective was how, like, what is that? Uh, who's the boxer? I think it's Muhammad Ali that says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Or may, actually maybe it's Mike Tyson. That sounds like a Mike Tyson quote. Yeah, I think it's Mike Tyson. <laughs> and, you know, like he's not a, exactly known for being a philosopher, but I, um, <laughs> but I think it's, there's, there's a lot of validity to that, right? Like you can, you, from an armchair, you can say whatever you want and you can make whatever judgment you want, just kind of like you were saying, Zach. But when you're in the cold and you're hungry and, you're, and you've been cold for a month and you have a chance to go just go into a POW camp and sit in front of a fire, <laughs> 
um, we don't we don't really know like how we're going to react. And so that that setup, I think, painted the picture where it was possible to be sympathetic for sort of everybody in that line. Right. There was there was the old man who they called the the head man who had already turned. Right. And then he had a moment of redemption. Uh, there was the, the woman who was sort of innocent. She was portrayed as innocent because they just happened to cross her farm with her kids. Yeah. But she was a sympathizer for the party. So in a sense, she was like she wasn't completely innocent in the German size. Right. She was also a, a, a partisan, so to speak, in this in this language. Then there was the two soldiers and they reacted. So everybody had their moment. And there was even a little girl who was who stuck through it. Uh, which maybe could be an example of like the innocence of children, and she was willing to die. She was probably the bravest behind uh, Sutnikov. The little the girl that also got hung was probably the bravest of them. Mm. Um, but it, my my point is, I guess that the setup of the first half, I think, really made us possible to be sympathetic for everybody, no matter how they reacted uh, to the pressure. Yeah, I love the, um, like you were talking about the desperation aspect, because one of the most desperate things you can go through, and, you know, we can go through, I'll try to keep the history stuff, you know, not too tan uh, tangent, but, you know, of course, Russia's famous for scorched earth policy, and mm -hmm. it kept the, you kept the Nazis from really being able to take over, kept Napoleon, um, the idea that, yeah, there's a lot of desperation, because the way their policy works is there isn't going to be a lot of food to be found, and, you know, my hist I think a history teacher I had put it best. The two dumbest things you'll learn through history is don't keep printing money and don't invade uh, Russia in the winter. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a good reason why, um, because it does. I mean, you know, even for these people who are kind of lost and left behind, they're dealing with what the Germans are dealing with. And they're going through probably the harshest weather conditions they possibly can. Absolutely. Like I think what Shapiko does well is, and like what you were saying, Chris, at the start, um, you know, the, what the characters are put through. And I think what Shapiko is trying to say with the sort of lead up and then to the ending is when you put a person to the absolute edge of what they can take physically, yeah. mentally, spiritually, how will they react? You know, will they will, will they stick to their core values or can they be tempted and uh, obviously we were literally given examples of of two characters one who sticks to his core values the, the Sotnikov who starts to film off and you kind of think of him as kind of maybe cowardly or maybe a bit weak or even maybe a bit dumb the way he like he loses his hat and everything like that you kind of like to start he's kind of portrayed as the as the baggage for this character of Ryback who seems much more courageous and in the end it's Sotnikov who's actually the courageous one and who sticks to his core values. And, and I don't want to call Ryback a coward or anything like that. Obviously, like, like what you were saying, Zach, you don't know what you're going to do until you are in that situation. It's impossible for you to know what you would do in that situation. Um, but obviously Ryback, the one who starts more courageous or you, you think he looks the stronger of the two. If you were, to, if you were out in the, in the forest and you saw these two guys in Russian winter and you said you could only follow Sotnikov or you could only follow Ryback. You're going to follow Ryback. Right. You know, you're, this is the guy you're going to follow. He just has the charisma of a leader. But obviously he then is the one that ends up turning because he doesn't want to, he, he doesn't want to die and nobody wants to die, you know? So it's, it's a really interesting moral dilemma that, that Shapitko puts in front of the viewer. 
And it's very easy to sort of look at it objectively and say, Ryback's a coward. He turned to the Nazis. He shouldn't have done it. Satnikov, you're a hero. You're a great guy. But it's, it's, it's never as easy as something like that when, when you think of the first hour and what these characters have been put through uh, physically and mentally. One of uh, the things I think is interesting, we are talking about the end completely, right? Like yeah. everything. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, uh, might as well. Uh, of course, at the very end, he does try to hang himself. And I mean, this is just minutes after, you know, uh, everyone else died, you know, for their principles or died because they were betrayed. And it, it kind of reminded me a lot of what we kind of, what you kind of did, what the correction system deals with, with executions is, you know, there's plenty of cases where the people who were there on um, death row will try to hang themselves before they're executed or um, to that sense. And there's kind of a little bit of a backwards play here, but it does come with a lot with choice. And I think, you know, I think that comes into part of how people react is when they're given a choice and when they're not, because, you know, obviously throughout the film, he's imagining making the choice of running and he can't do that either. Like he, he keeps imagining his mind getting shot. And then at the end, he wants to make a choice. He wants to get out of the situation and he just can't. And he has no control. Like he, 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 strives so hard to have control over the situation and just never gets it yeah on the idea of control and choice absolutely um and i suppose obviously the, the fact that he tried to hang himself kind of brings back the sort of the the, the judas imagery is obviously yeah. you know after he sort of gave up on you know he sort of gave up jesus to the romans you know obviously he hung himself so um it, it does sort of tie in a lot then to the you know to the idea that Sotnikov was the christ-like figure and and ryback was almost a judas this is interesting have you have either one of y'all read uh dostoevsky's book the idiot and uh, no it's one of the dostoevsky's i haven't read because it's so long so i haven't is that the guy who, I, I'm going to sound completely ignorant. Is that the same guy who wrote Four Brothers, or am I thinking of someone else? Yeah, the Karazmarkov okay. brothers, and he did, um, yeah, The Idiot, The Double, Notes from Underground, Crime and Punishment. Those would be, like, his big ones. Okay, yeah. I've read The Brothers one, like, because I was in The Lost, and I read it when I was, like, way too young to read it. But anyway, what were you going to say, Chris? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, he, he was Russian as well, and, and I just think it's interesting that there's two examples now from Russia where the Christ-like figure was seen as dumb or weak or, or meek from the people around him in the beginning and then transforms to become the strength in the, in the character. So it's, it's just an interesting, I know that we've, we've talked before, uh, uh, neither one of y'all are necessarily very, uh, you know, active in, in religion in 2021, but there's uh, this, just the way that Jesus is portrayed in different cultures, I think is interesting because that's not, you know, just I don't think in the U.S. you would ever hear. I mean, there's certainly this idea of him being like meek and like, you know, the, the meekness is sort of is, is strength. But when he's talked about, it's never from that perspective. But there's two examples now from Russian literature where, you know, there's actually a, a very uh, obvious sort of journey for this character that's supposed to represent Christ of first being seen as very weak and uh, cowardly and dumb and all of that. And then over time getting to see that he's actually just a, has a quiet strength. Um, so it, that was, that was my main point. It's just interesting to see that perspective on, on the Christ-like figure from, from maybe a different culture. Um, and, and one that was, you know, 
for the most part, atheistic, right? Like, I don't think it was a big religious culture anyways. Well, yeah, the Soviet Union would have been an atheistic um, regime, so they they wouldn't have they wouldn't have even. Well, obviously, you know, people would have still had their own beliefs, everything like that. From an official sort of regime government point of view, it would have been an atheistic one. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just something in Russia in, in Russia in general. I suppose you could even say the same thing about Ivan in in Ivan's childhood. Mm. The way again at the start of the film, he's he's when he's first introduced, he's teased by a soldier because he's just this kid. When it turns out he's actually a very brave partisan who goes into dangerous territory to to find that information for the Russian cause. So, and again, it's someone else who sort of pays heavily for for that uh, action that he takes. Um, so I think it's just yeah, maybe it's just something in in Russia. Maybe they, maybe it's a, a vanity thing that they want their you know their soldiers to be seen as even though they're regular ordinary people. They're still capable of acts of bravery for the Soviet cause. So perhaps maybe it's less about religion and more so about, you know, just just showing that everyday ordinary people can be brave for the Soviet cause, you know, to try and rally around the troops and rally around patriotism and everything like that. So maybe we're looking into the the Christ thing a little bit deep, deeper, but I think Obviously, with well, with this film, the fact that Shapitko had instructed the character of Satnikov to be acted by someone who who looks sort of Christ-like would maybe tie it into this one a bit more. Um, but yeah, I just think that's something that runs through Soviet um, literature and film from this era. This whole idea of sort of patriotism. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, when you talk about like the most selfless act you can, you know, commit, it's you know, dying for your beliefs, the idea of dying for other people and self-sacrifice and, you know, nobody, nobody dies to be petty. You know, that's not a, that's not a thing that happens. So it does make sense that regardless, yeah, probably one of the more famous ideas of self-sacrifice is going to be the story of Jesus and that idea. So, um, I don't, I I definitely think it's intentional, especially with everything you said, Adam, uh, but you know, I almost wonder when you talk about self-sacrifice if it's if if it's one of those things where Jesus is going to be inherently involved in that idea because it's so ingrained in world culture. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I feel like if just at the end we we have to at least talk about the cinematography a little bit, right? Um, oh yeah, for sure. Um, I just, I think Adam, I think you said it best. Uh, the the idea that the the white of the snow and the white of the sky kind of blend together to create one oppressive sort of like blanket over them of everything that was going on. Yeah, um, def- like env- envelopes them really. It just it, they're almost like stuck in a void. It was brilliant. I don't know how she was able to pull that off, or I guess the DP was able to pull that off. It just. It's it's the best. I think it's probably my favorite use of black and white, in, from the perspective of like where the focus is on the white. <laughs> Usually, the focus is on like that contrast. Yeah. No, she well, yeah and, she used white great here. Um, sorry, Zach. No, uh, you're you're good. Um, you can go ahead, Adam. I was going yeah. She used I think any sort of uh, scene set in snow. I just love a black and white snow scene. That's that's something that I love when it shows up in films, it always piques my interest, even in films I'm not really necessarily enjoying. I watched Le Beau Surge recently, and for the most part, I did not like the film, but then there's a scene towards the end where it's in the snow and it's in black and white. And I suppose I, talk, I spoke about it before, how much I liked the black and white snow scene at the end of Shoot the Piano Player. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, she she shoots snow incredibly well. Obviously, there was sort of sort of scenes when we're in the forest where there is the black of the trees creating that contrast is really beautiful as well. Um, but yeah, when she was able to basically sort of shoot the more longer shots of the guy just sort of moving through the snowy plains, it really created this really bleak and desolate, but sort of, you know, beautiful imagery. There was surprisingly, and this is why I kind of feel like, you know, like I said, I haven't done any research on the background, but I do feel like there was at least a decent amount of equipment in this. And I do feel like the, you know, at least the black and white was intentional, especially for what you talked about, Adam. Because, you know, one thing I was really impressed with, as old as this, you know, and probably not as taken care of as this negative was, there's a lot of detail. And I would love to actually mm-hmm. talk to, like, anyone who's ever done DP work, because, thing, you know, because of the snow, there's going to be so much brightness. So th- there's probably, like, this naturalistic look with it, too, because anyone who's been in the snow knows that if the sun's out at the same time, it's almost blinding. Yeah. So that may have actually helped to get like this, so much detail in the people, but allowed like this background to just be like you said, Adam, just like a complete void. Mm. I doubt you would have needed much artificial lighting as long no, as the no, sun no. was out. <laughs> yeah. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.